Hello, my name is Richard Fern. I'm joined today by Professor Christopher Reeve of the University of Warwick Department of History. Professor Reeve is an expert in Russia, the former Soviet Union, a country which has enjoyed a tremendous resurgence over the last 12 to 18 months. Eight years ago, the former Soviet Union, Russia, was forced to renege upon its £40 billion debt. Uh, at the moment, its foreign reserves currently stand at just over $100 billion. Christopher, what's changed over the past 18 months? Well, it's not just the last 18 months. I mean, I think they are really benefiting from uh, changing international climate since the eight-year cri- uh, crisis uh, eight years ago, 1998, devaluation. They had an absolutely massive devaluation. Of course, as we know, devaluation um, can throw a country back temporarily, but it cuts its labour costs, it cuts its manufacturing costs, it raises the cost of imports, and it makes the country more self-reliant. Um, but the actual trump card, which uh, Russia's had over the past uh, eight years and 18 months, uh, in particular, is the rise in oil prices. Uh, oil prices are about uh, six times higher at the moment than they were in 1998. And uh, Russia is awash with oil cash and oil money. That's the basic source of this surplus. To what extent has Putin's leadership been important in this? It's hard to say. Um, Putin is a very very hard figure to analyse because he seems to be so grey. He seems to have very little in the way of uh, distinctive policies... Um, he is a kind of almost a background figure for somebody who has such massive popularity ratings and dominates the nations, the politics of a great nation, without any obvious rival at the present time. Um, I think Putin is a bit of an, an enigma from that point of view. Clearly what he has brought is an end to the wild corruption of the Yeltsin era. Uh, he's made it more difficult. He's... he's uh, put one of the most important, um, uh, what would one call them, rogue capitalists, um, Hodorkovsky, in jail. Uh, others, uh, like Beryozovsky, uh, are unable to go back to Russia. Um, there are others of that ilk who now have to make sure that they are friends of Putin's and uh, well-known to British audience is Roman Abramovich. Uh, who was a, 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 a protégé of Beryozovsky's and has um, kept much better relations with Putin and, and, and visits Putin and uh, uh, is still and was invited by Putin to remain as governor of the rather remote province of Chukotka. I don't know uh, what Abramovich's connection with Chukotka is. Uh, Certainly the, 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 the Chukchi are very delighted to have him because he keeps showering them with gifts. But uh, Putin, has, uh, Putin has maintained a degree of stability, reduced the corruption, uh, and his most important policy in this area, I think, is that he has attempted to reverse the giveaway uh, privatisations of the 1990s where state assets, massive state assets were stripped off at a tiny proportion of their real cost. Now, the most important of these is gas and oil. And what Putin has been doing consistently for the past five, six, seven years 
is to try to retain and reverse some of those privatizations. Uh, the new giant Gazprom, which uh, has been talked about quite a lot in the Western press in the last 18 months, has become a major force. And it is a, it is a mixture of state and private ownership uh, that controls the oil industry now. Um, hence, the state has got a much bigger stake in that. That's led people to be um, rather concerned that in the longer term, Russia's power is going to become resurgent on the back of this very, very large near potential near monopoly of oil. Uh, and uh, it will continue uh, to try to use its oil power for political purposes. In fact, we've seen some of that, mm -hmm. haven't we? We've seen the gas supplies interrupted to some of the Eastern Bloc countries. Yes, there was an, there was a crisis uh, that was reported widely last winter uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, when Russia threatened to uh, interrupt and did temporarily reduce the supply of oil and gas to to Ukraine, um, with a view to pushing the price up. Because at that stage, uh, as was traditional, Russia had been selling oil and gas to its friends at much reduced rates and I think it was about one third the rate that they were getting for the uh, for, for what they were exporting to Western Europe so they were simply trying to push the Ukraine into the into the world of free market economics which the new government in the Ukraine proclaimed to be at that time to be a supporter of but they didn't particularly relish that aspect of it. Commentators in the media are now saying that pretty soon Russia will be exporting more oil than Saudi Arabia. Uh, it won't be the first time in its history either. I mean, it, it's actually interesting that 100 years ago it was the world's number one oil exporter, oil producer, for a brief period. Um, and uh, it's very likely that it will be uh, the major uh, oil producer for what will probably be the last spurt of the oil age, I guess, uh, in which case a lot, of the, a lot of the prices could be quite high and they could benefit very strongly from that. They have massive reserves in western Siberia uh, in oil and gas. Um, they're also, uh, and this is a, an issue which is currently in the press to some extent, trying to reassert uh, the state's rights to a larger slice of the oil in Sakhalin in the Far East um, in the Sea of Japan and uh, a number of Western oil companies are getting um, rather uh, concerned about that. Of course you never know quite as an oil company, they don't know whether to play along with this and maintain good relations with Russia which I think is crucial to them and they probably will or whether to go into for some form of resistance against it which could backfire against them in the longer term but um, certainly uh, they are uh, going to be massive players in the oil and gas industry. I mean, it's quite interesting that uh, in 2005, China and Russia held joint military exercises. The last time they did that was 1958. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Russia, Russia seems quite keen to um, uh, renew old friendships in the Southeast Asian region. Well, yes, there are, I think, a number of interesting issues here. First of all is the issue of Russia's own identity. Um, it is... A traditional issue for the last 150 years in Russia to ask whether we're Westerners or Easterners or whether we're a special blend of the two, whether we belong to the, to the Asian world uh, or to the European world. Now, in recent years, from the European side, from the Western perspective, Russia has become 
a difficult country to deal with. Almost everywhere else, including several former Soviet republics, are now part of the EU. The borders of the European Union, Poland is a major player, which was obviously part of the um, Soviet uh, bloc. But it, but not only that, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, and now Bulgaria and Romania as, 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 as former bloc states are going to be admitted. I think there's a big danger there that, that Russia is going to get isolated, that Russia's too big, as it were, to be uh, ever incorporated into the European Union, but it's it's also too big uh, to be ignored. And there's a, there's a problem brewing there about that. And from Moscow's perspective, I think that the development of the European Union, the continued existence of NATO, could be seen as mildly alarming. Obviously, there's no threat at the moment, but they could in the longer term be seen as mildly alarming, which has led Russia to look for friends elsewhere, and the most obvious place for it to look today is China, because um, China, uh, although it's still uh, a communist-led, communist party uh, monopolized state, is a kind of model which I think Putin would like to see Russia follow more, which is a model of state-led capitalism. Russia has a history of state-led capitalism going back to the 19th century, um, the 1920s are kind of um, almost looked back on nostalgically, I think wrongly, but as a golden age uh, when a, a kind of state capitalism survived, which was crushed by Stalin's uh, industrialization in the late 20s and early 30s. So um, Russia has not had a culture of free market capitalism and entrepreneurs. It's had a culture of state-led capitalism that gives it, a, a, if you look obviously at China, which is the fastest growing economy in the world and has been now for 15 years, and my sinologist friends every year have told me it's not going to last, <laughs> um, but it's still there, um, is a model which would be relatively easy, um, I mean relatively uh, attractive for Putin to follow, to have a stronger state element uh, in the economy to control and regulate what was in the 1990s a kind of wild cowboy capitalism, which of course hasn't entirely died out because only last week the deputy director of the state bank was assassinated. Um, in the 1990s, uh, your life expectancy as a, as a leader of a bank, particularly in Moscow, was quite quite short. Mm. Um, something like eight uh, of the top 16 bankers in Moscow were assassinated in the 1990s. Putin has stopped that, and I think he wants to control and regulate that kind of, uh, of wild uh, frontier capitalism. Um, but they haven't settled down to a particular uh, comfortable model. Internationally, of course, too, it makes sense for Russia to, uh, to be friendly with China. China's a, a, a massive country with a massive population, and uh, they have a common border down the Usuri River, and north of the Asuri River, Russia has massive resources and no population. Uh, that, of course, is a tempting target for China if it had an imperialistic frame of mind. And also, um, not only that, though they were territories to which uh, China had a claim in the 19th century before the, before the boundary uh, was settled where it is at present. So rather than have disputes with China over Far Eastern territories much better to be uh, an ally of them and to help exploit them jointly and to, to work 
um, as they are with Japan, to use Far Eastern assets to fuel uh, the Asian uh, economic, uh, massive Asian economic growth. Are we seeing a return to the Soviet policy of um, war with the West by proxy, for instance, Syria, Iran, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, India as well, uh, the non-aligned states? Um, I don't think so, not at the moment, no. I think uh, I think Russia is not terribly interested in international problems at the moment. It's got too many internal problems. Uh, I don't think it feels uh, the same kind of threat from the Western world either. Um, and that's to reiterate uh, what I was suggesting earlier. I think it's, it's absolutely vital for the European Union to keep on good terms with Moscow, to not allow Moscow to get isolated, to feel paranoid, where they might be tempted back into some of those old Soviet habits um, of trying to uh, simply oppose Western policies. Um, I mean, they do feel a sense of protectorate over parts of the Middle East, not least because their borders are there. Um, and they have problems of their own uh, in Chechnya. Uh, they are the Georgians are um, fighting terrorism, if that's the right term to use. Uh, sometimes alongside the Russians, sometimes in in hostility to them, depending on which government's in power in in, in Georgia. Um, and they have they have a lot of concerns which are common to the Western concerns. I don't think at the moment there's uh, any sign at all of major conflict between them but they opposed uh, they opposed the first gulf war until the very last minute they tried to mediate that one uh, back in uh, when gorbachev was still in power um and uh, they would prefer as indeed many of us would that this current gulf war was was not taking place either but it's it, they don't like major powers um asserting themselves close to their borders but I don't think there's anything like confrontation on the scale that we used to know it is, is at all likely in the medium term What's the state of Russia's military at the moment? Um, it's a very interesting question I mean it, it's gone through uh, it's gone through a decade and a half of colossal decline uh, it's uh, become partly demoralised I think you probably have to distinguish between two parts of the military. They still have uh, conscription. They still have massive a massive army and lots of uh, lots of people, uh, young men are, are sucked into it, and uh, they have a by and large most of them pretty awful experience. There's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of uh, of misconduct, and I, I, I think that uh, those mass military units are probably in a fairly poor state. What 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 the government has done over time, however is to build up a number of elite military units um, for special purposes to be, the, as it were, the, 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 the parachute brigades, the SAS, the equivalent thereof, uh, in order to do specific tasks. And they're much more serious military operators. Um, they, send them, they, they can send the ground troops in uh, uh, almost as cannon fodder, but, the, but uh, where they're fighting, as in Chechnya, it, it's by and large specialist units which are the spearhead of all their operations. Globally, um, things like the strategic rocket forces, the submarine fleet, the navy um, have suffered probably more than the army. Traditionally Russia relies on its army for its survival going back to the um, 16th century really, the rise of 
Moscow was related to the rise of its army and uh, Russia is essentially defined as the territory which the army can stake out for it uh, in many ways. So the army is crucial to, to Russia's survival in a way that the navy uh, is more a projection of their power overseas, which they're not particularly interested in at the moment. Uh, obviously, they, they are maintaining a, a strong nuclear deterrent um, Despite its decline, they've still got plenty of uh, plenty of warheads left, uh, and the uh, air force and the the it, it still maintains uh, a significant presence. But it, it's nothing compared to what it was in terms of power, um, even back in 1985, in the late uh, the end of the Brezhnev and uh, uh, before the real Gorbachev transition years. Can Russia? maintain this resurgence? Uh, I think so, because um, I, I, I think the oil uh, prices are not going to go down. Uh, oil prices, if anything, are going to go higher in the long, in the medium and longer term, uh, and they're going to feed into the economy. Um, they, it, they have other resources as well. They have massive resources potentially in out-of-the-way parts of Siberia where they're quite difficult to get at. And I suppose uh, one could say that as the world uh, runs out of easily uh, recovered resources, those in Siberia are likely in the longer term to become more valuable and uh, to be uh, more prioritised as and uh, 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 more competitive in terms of the extra cost of producing them um, but the uh, I, I would uh, the, there's no sign of instability internally in Russia which might derail this kind of prosperity or relative prosperity in the short in the short term so I would expect it to continue to become increasingly powerful and and, and increasingly wealthy the growth of Russia's economy, to what extent has that affected the livelihoods of all of Russia's people? Well, there's a very, very strong polarisation in Russia that's gone on since uh, the collapse of communism. Um, it's perhaps coming together a little bit now through Putin developing uh, state services and uh, trying to repair some of the state's uh, um, welfare and, and, and health and education and things of that nature. But um, there was a massive, massive polarisation which developed. Um, if you were an older person, a pensioner, uh, the 1990s was extremely tough. And the, 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 the chief index of that, I suppose, the most uh, extraordinary index of that is life expectancy. Russian life expectancy, particularly for males, was dropping faster than the years were going by in the 1990s. Um, and if you take a statistical calculation of excess deaths, which is sometimes done uh, as a guide to the purge of the 1930s, you find that in the 1990s there were more excess deaths than there were under Stalin. Um, people were out of jobs, they had no health services, they, men in particular turned to vodka, uh, and they shortened their lives, and, uh, and life ex life expectancy dropped from about sixty nine to about sixty, uh, and it's stabilised. Um, and uh, some 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 would suggest it's actually begun to rise again. Suggests this degree of polarisation has, has has stopped getting worse, but it's still there. So uh, certain sectors of the population who are not part of this vast new market. Um, 
of uh, oil-driven and, 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 and um, rather selective uh, areas of the economy. Pharmaceuticals is another one where there's been a lot of money. Some people have made money out of the automotive industry. Some have made money out of airlines, some out of journalism, uh, sorry, out of newspaper ownership and media ownership, um, advertising, IT, these kind of things. There are, there are certain boom areas, but if you're in one of the old industries... If you were, say, in a provincial city which was famous for producing steel or, or um, mass production of, of some of the old um, Soviet goods, or if you worked on the railways, which has been underinvested and things like that, um, life has, uh, or the metro in Moscow for that matter, uh, life would have been quite difficult. You could have survived. I mean, if you retained your job, you'd have been kind of in the middle of this relative polarization you wouldn't have become rich you wouldn't have become poor but you'd have you'd have still been able to survive but there's a very small number in that area a lot of people have gone up uh, their incomes have, have gone soaring and others have, have, have collapsed so if you were a, a worker or a, or a or a, pub, a state uh, employee in education or health uh, you'd have seen a massive collapse in your living standards right the way through the 90s into the uh, early uh, 21st century um, as I say, that in some ways that seems to have stabilised, partly because there are uh, a number of those people will have been drawn out into privatised services. Private, there are universities, uh, private universities, private schools, uh, private hospitals, private health care uh, for the elite, uh, for the better off. Um, and that does provide some employment for some of those people who are in the state sector, but the state sector is is, is still in a in a um, it's not in as deplorable a state as it was, and, and things have kept functioning. Railways have kept functioning, the metro and metro systems have kept functioning, public transport has kept functioning, um, but with with relative but with what appears to be much less investment and uh, and. Uh, much lower standards uh, of service and lower standards of, uh, of things like um, cleanliness and maintenance and that kind of thing. Professor Christopher Reid, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.